You guys ready to get back into Philippians? Yes. You enjoying Philippians? God's grace in lockdown? That's really what Philippians is all about. It felt, feels to me, I said to, to Mitch this week, I said, have we been in Philippians forever? Is anybody saying yes? Guess how many sermons this is, what sermon number this is in the book of Philippians so far? Like 106? Five, okay? We've only been in Philippians. This is only our fifth sermon in Philippians. For those of you who are going, we're still in Philippians? We're only in number five, and we look like we're going to get it done with but 12 sermons total, okay? Because there's little things we break in and out of. So we're going to get done by the end of the year, but but 12 sermons total. And uh, we're going to do it. It's, it's mapped out. And so Debbie's not believing me. It's mapped out. We're going to get it done by the end of the year, even with Christmas stuff coming in there. Um, and so I hope like you, I'm really enjoying what the Lord is revealing from his word to my heart for my life in the book of Philippians. So I hope I'm being able to just transfer some of that, that you're getting to enjoy it, you know, as, as I'm learning from the Lord in this book. And what we're going to look at today, and we'll, we'll read the text in just a moment, is Philippians chapter 2. We're going to just look at a couple verses today, verses 12 through 16. And I know when I say that, that's why some of you say it's no way we're going to get through the whole book. We've got chapters to go in a few more weeks. But the way Philippians is written is he does a lot of stuff in the beginning. And then at the end of the book, a lot of it is repetition and it's kind of broader sections that he deals with. We'll actually see that the next sermon I preach. Kind of a whole section just to get one thought. And so today we're going to leave a little section, just Philippians 2, 12 to 16. And these verses, so you can understand them, wrap up the thought that the Apostle Paul began writing back in chapter 1, verse 27. And if you remember, it's been, this is the third week now in that section that we're dealing with, where the Apostle Paul is basically dealing with this thought. He's writing about to the Philippians. Remember, these are people that he loves. He planted the church. He loves them, and he's encouraging them in this letter. And what, what historians believe is the Philippians had some internal conflict going on. They were doing fine as far as doctrine and things, but there was some some um, division going on in the church, and he's he's trying to get them to to work it out. And we'll see some of that later in the book. But in, in chapter one, verse twenty-seven, he says something, and then the, all the verses we've been looking at since are his way of explaining it. And what he said in one twenty-seven was, "Listen, he's like writing to Christians, so he's written to, writing to you and me, and he says you need to live your lives worthy of the gospel." You need to live your life in a way that in light of the fact of what Jesus has done for you, your life is going to reflect what you're gaining through Christ and what you're learning through Christ and, and your appreciation for Christ. And what we found in these last couple of weeks that that included all kinds of things, but he said a life worthy of the gospel included things like this, that in the church, remember he's writing to a church that's kind of disunified. He's saying, you know what? Be unified in what you do. It's actually kind of the main theme he has is, is live in, live in and minister in unity. Then he says not only should be, that's a life worthy of the gospel, a unified life. He also says a life worthy of the gospel is as in unity, we all work together for eternal kingdom purposes. He said also living a life worthy of the gospel is putting others' needs before ourselves. And if you remember, the sermon we talked about that is, I put a picture of Jesus up on the screen on the cross. And Paul, Paul in there, because he was, he was giving a word picture of what we could see visually, he, used, he quoted an old hymn from the early church. He quoted a hymn. And he said, um, this hymn talked about how God, Jesus, gave himself up for all the world, for humanity. So, so that's what he's been saying so far of how we live a life worthy of the gospel. And now, in these sections, he's going to continue on with that idea. He's going to finish his thoughts about this. So let's read chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, about this idea, how do I live a life 
worthy the gospel. Starting in verse um, 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glorify because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. And we'll stop right there. So in this section, he starts off by pointing out what I could say this is a two-sided coin. You know when I use that phrase, somebody says a two-sided coin, what they're talking about? Does it make sense to some of you? Does that make sense to you, Read what I mean, a two-sided coin? It means he's going to talk about something and talk about from both sides. You know, if I had a coin in my hand, on one side there would be one picture, on the other side is another picture. And what he's doing, he starts off here kind of talking about two sides of one issue. And the first important, he's going to say, two sides of living a life worthy of the gospel. And the first thing he says is that one side of this coin, if you look at this topic, is that living the type of life that's worthy of the gospel takes hard work. That living a life worthy of the gospel takes hard work. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, that's what verse 12 is all about. Some of this verse has confused a lot of Christians over the years. He says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Is that verse ever kind of, kind of made you scratch your head and go, what's that all about? I thought we're saved by grace. And I'm supposed to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Well, maybe a better translation of that, and some of your other, some of your translations write it a little bit different, um, what makes it a little clearer to understand. A better translation of that term, of that phrase, might be this. Work with utter seriousness to show the results of your salvation. Work with utter... Remember, he's writing to Christian people. It's not a salvation issue. He's not saying this is how you come to Christ. He's saying for Christian people, one side of this coin of living out a life that's worthy of the gospel is that you would work with utter seriousness to show the results of your salvation or the evidence that you actually walk with Jesus. Paul is saying that to live out a life that is worthy of the gospel, a life that reveals the results and the reality of one's salvation, that it requires utter seriousness. In other words, it requires, he said, work. Work out your salvation. It requires work. And I think that brings up a question. It brings up a question in my mind, and I think it should bring up a question in your mind. Do we often think about our spiritual growth and and how we live out our Christianity in these kinds of terms? Do we really plan to invest a lot of energy and effort into our spiritual development? You know, do we really believe that in order to live out our lives in a way that, as Paul would say, is worthy of the gospel, that that kind of life takes utter seriousness? Or do we think this? No, if I just ask Jesus in my life, then all the spiritual stuff, the spiritual results, they just kind of happen. What do we think? Paul is saying here that work is required. And I think that that the thing I would want us to take away from what Paul is saying here is this, that spiritual growth and development are simply not automatic. That maturing in Jesus, 
They're growing in Christ in a way that reveals. He's saying, not just saying, oh, I, I made a commitment to Christ, but a lifestyle that then reveals that somebody, there's a saying that says, you know, don't, you know, preach the gospel whenever necessary, use words. That you would live such a life that people would say, I actually, without your words, see that you serve Jesus. That to have that kind of a life, a life that reveals Jesus through your life, that that, that growth into that person takes intention, takes intentionality, it takes effort to become that kind of person. Now, what's interesting is I think, interestingly, we understand this and we believe this about every other area of our life. Now, is anybody in here a golfer? Like zero? One? Wow, that's changed. When I said that 20 years ago, every hand would have went up. But I was thinking of this, just in terms of things like golf. I'm not a golfer, so I'm with you. You know, I golf like once every five years, and here's my goal every time I golf. If I could just get one par. That's my, that's, that's pretty low bar. One par is my, in 18 holes. That'd be a good day for me, and not lose more than 20 balls. You know? And so you all, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you want to say golfer, whatever your hobby is, if you wanted to be a get better golfer, what would you have to do? Practice. You know, you'd have to learn to put some effort into it. If you were a person who, and I know some pastors who golf a lot, and if I go into their office, you know what I find in their office, sitting in their corner? A putter. And they have this little putting green. And when they're not doing anything of, of more important, they're, they're like this, and they're learning how to putt. You know what they say, like the hardest thing is a three-foot putt, whatever. You know, they're learning how to putt a three-foot putt or a 20-foot putt. They're doing enough. Why? Because they know to get better at golf, they have to practice. How about if you want to advance in your career, whatever your career is, whatever your job is? What would I have to do to get better in my career? I know Josh right now, you just quit your job and went to college back full-time going to MSOE to get a master's in perfusion, whatever that is. You want him to be good at it because of you have heart surgery in the future. He's the guy who's going to do. You have to put some live. He's going to make sure your heart works. Um, you know, and so you want to advance in your career. What do you have to do? You have to put some effort in. You had to go back to school. I just finished a master's degree. Why? I wanted to be better as a pastor of this church. I wanted to understand formation better. How do we become more like Jesus better? So I invested $20,000 of my money in two years of my life to say, I want to get better at understanding how do I help the people of Portview become more like Jesus? I had to put effort into it. And you do too. You put effort into your career to advance. Maybe you continue your education. Maybe you have to learn some new skills. What you have to do is you have to use intention and effort. And the question I would want us to think about today is why would it be any different when it comes to our spiritual life and growth and development? And here's the answer. It's not. If we don't intentionally desire to grow and to change in Christ and put effort into our growth and and character development then here's what's going to happen in your life. You're going to advance in years, but not in Christian maturity and Christ-likeness. Here's a revelation I had a few years back, and it was a hard revelation. It has to do with age spots. I thought of life as an hourglass, and I thought no matter what I'm doing, positive or negative, the sand never stops flowing through the hourglass. Anybody else ever come to that epiphany in life? That no matter what you're doing, the time just keeps slipping by? If you're having fun or not having fun, if you're sleeping, you're awake, the sand keeps falling of your life, the sand keeps falling through the hourglass of your life, and you keep, it, you keep, it keeps going. And here's the deal in our Christian lives. You can live your life and become an old, old Christian person that in no way really reveals Jesus to the world around you. 
We can advance in years, but not advance in maturity and in Christ-likeness. We have a great, I was mentioning this earlier, we have a great growth opportunity right now going on at Portview on Wednesday nights. Jeff and Lori are, are leading a class about dealing with offenses. And here's the truth about it. It's been convicting me. I've not liked the class you've taught very much. I've loved it, I need it, but I've not liked it necessarily. It's challenging me to do some honest evaluation and make some changes in my life. You know, we have Trek and Alpha starting soon. It's opportunities to grow and develop. It's putting effort into our spiritual lives. And Paul is saying here, spiritual growth is, it takes effort. It takes intentionality. You don't become more like Jesus. You don't overcome those, those obstacles that keep you from growing in Christ like this, which is the best, most blessed life you could live. It's not that you're accomplishing something to put, you know, a, a new badge. I've got this badge on my shoulder that says, I'm this better Christian. No, it's so that you can live the greatest life that God meant you to live. Is as you develop more and more and become more and more like Jesus. What Paul is saying here, and how do you live a life worthy of the gospel? He's saying, you don't become that person who expresses that on accident. It doesn't just happen. It takes effort and intentionality. So that's one side of the coin. You look at it and Paul says, hey, you've got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've got to put utterly serious attention to becoming that person. But then he, he does something. He flips the coin over. And he points out the other side of living a life that's worthy of the gospel. Look what he shows when he, when he turns over the coin. Look at verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, okay, be serious about it. And then he flips the coin and says, and God's the one at work in you doing the work. Look what he's doing here. He starts out reminding us that spiritual growth and development takes effort. Then he turns the coin over and he reminds us that we are not in this growth process alone. He says, in fact, it is God who is actually the driving force behind the success of our spiritual growth and development. He says, God is at work in you. What's he giving you? It says here, the New Living Translation says it this way, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases God. So he says, you work hard, but remember, God's the one who's actually inside of you working, giving you the very desire to change and all the power that you need to change in order. And it says, that will please him. Think about this something right now. God is at work in you. That means that by his spirit, he is wanting you to grow and to change. He's wanting me to grow and to change. It's his plan for us to live out our lives in a manner that Paul says is worthy of the gospel. And that does something for the It removes any idea that this growth process is optional for the child of God. He's saying this, it's God's desire for us to become more like Jesus, this idea of living out the gospel in a way that people see. And then Paul tells us some very good news about this. He says it's God himself who gives us the desire and the power to grow and develop in the way that God wants us to grow and to to develop. So he isn't like some bosses that some of you have had, maybe you have right now, I've had in my past, that expect better and more results. Come on, produce, produce, produce. But they don't give you the wherewithal to do it. They don't give you the authority. They don't give you the resources. They don't give you the things you need. They don't tell you how to do it. They just do do more with less. Anybody ever heard that? 
right? Do more with less. They don't say it that way. They just expect more, but they don't tell you how. That's not how God is. No. God does have high expectations of his children. He says, live lives that are worthy of the gospel. He expects us to grow up spiritually and to not remain spiritual babies. Paul talks about, you shouldn't be drinking spiritual milk anymore. But he says to some, to some people, he's saying, but I can't give you firm meat because you're just a child. And he's saying, you should, that's, that, that's not God's plan. So what's he saying? God then gives us the desire and the power to change if we'll partner with him. Friends, this little, these two little verses in Scripture that you could so easily just read right by are maybe the clearest text in all the Bible that explain to us how God has developed our, what our relationship with him is intended to be like. He does hold high standards for us, but he is the one who then makes it possible for us to achieve those standards. There's this partnership between us and God in our growth and development. It takes God putting a desire into our hearts and his enablement by the Holy Spirit to make sure it gets done, but it also requires our hard work, our utter seriousness. They're saying, you know what? I'm going to actually take that class, or I'm going to daily spend time with Jesus. And he's saying this, Paul's saying this, both are essential. And let's think about this, about the class that I mentioned earlier that Jeff and Lori are leading. Honestly, I really didn't think that I had much need for growth in that area. Of, of, you know, it's called the bait of Satan. That Satan tempts you to be a person who's unforgiving. And then all the results that happen in your life because of that. You see, because I try, and as Suzanne could tell you this is true, I try really hard to deal with offenses and unforgiveness in my life. I pray through the Lord's Prayer every day. One of the main reasons I pray through the Lord's Prayer, but a lot of times, multiple times a day, is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I try saying, God, if I'm holding debt against anybody, if I feel anybody owes me anything, and I actually in my mind envision a red circle around it, and I put a line through it. I said, paid in full. I didn't owe me anything. And I try really hard to live there and to deal with offense and deal with unforgiveness so they don't take a foothold in my soul because I don't want them to because they have in the past in my life. And bitterness does set in, and I know the damage that it causes. But I felt a need to not only offer this class, but also to go through the class as a student. I'd say God gave me the desire to do it. Now, I'm into the class, and I'm identifying with some real issues. And I'm feeling convicted, which, by the way, friends, is a gift from God. Conviction is God's gift because he loves you because he wants you to get better. So he's pointing it out. So I'm reading, you know, I'm, I'm needing to do the hard work and I'm trying to do the hard work. I'm trying to be utterly serious about it. But let's be honest. Remember, I'm talking about me, but honestly, am I talking about me right now? No, I'm using me as an example for we. Let's be honest. It would be so much easier for me to just not go to the class, to not do the work to skip over it. It'd be so much easier. I wouldn't have to go through the pain of conviction. I wouldn't have to go to the pain of honestly admitting that yeah, there's still some people in my life that I'm holding um, ill will towards. It'd be so much easier, but it wouldn't be better. Developing in Christ's likeness is the best life we can live. Living a life worthy of the gospel is the better life that can be lived. So what do we do? I choose to do the hard work of self-evaluation and interaction with the Holy Spirit about the things going on in my life that he reveals 
so that I can get better. But that's not. The Spirit is within me. I'm also completely confident of this in the process. That the Holy Spirit is within me and that he's, uh, he's affecting any positive growth that's taking place and he's empowering me in any way that I need. Do you see how it works here? Do you see how God intends for it to work in all of us? I do my part and God does his part. And together we grow into the people who reveal the reality of our salvation that grow in Christ-likeness, that live lives worthy of the gospel. So here's my thought for you and my question. How are you partnering with the Holy Spirit in your growth process? Because here's what I know. If, it's, if the one side of the coin is God is the one who incites the desire, who stirs up the desire, and he's also going to be the ability to change, but that would tell me that the Holy Spirit is, is causing desire for growth in every one of us. And that the other side of the coin is that I'm supposed to put intentionality towards it, utter seriousness towards partnering with God. So my question would be for you is, how are you partnering with the Holy Spirit in your growth process? Remember something. The Apostle Paul said right here, it's God's good pleasure to help you grow. That God is is cheering us on. That God is inspiring us to mature and develop. And, And so we're saying, how can I partner with the pleasure of God in allowing God to bring change in my life as I partner with him. We bless God when we give ourselves to partnering with his activity in our lives. And I know something. I want you to know something. I like that. Do you like that? You can bless God as you partner with his activity in your life to become more like Jesus. I like that. Amen? Amen. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. What Paul does next in his text, and we need to kind of move on to make get the big picture of what he's saying here. He's talking about this two-sided coin, but he doesn't stop at the two-sided coin. What Paul does next in the text is to point out some more things that will be evident in our lives as we grow, as we live lives worthy of the gospel. What he does, I think, is he extends the list that we have been looking at over the last couple of weeks. And, and this is what I think Paul's mindset is here. And I can't, you know, he doesn't say it in the text, but I think as you step back and read it, this is what he's, he's doing here in this section. Um, that these are some real ways we can see the reality of God's activity. Since verse, chapter 1, verse 27, some real ways we can see God's activity in our lives, ways that we can grow and change and things that should be expressed in our lives as we partner with God. And he's telling that long list. And then what he does is he takes a step back. And that's what we've been looking at these couple verses, two verses. He takes a step back and he kind of makes a, a parenthesis in the middle of the list. And he goes, now let's remember something. You've got to work hard at this process and God is going to give you all that you need to make this process work. And that's what these two verses that we've been looking at this morning are about. And then what he does, he jumps back into the list. And he jumps back into this, this continuation with giving us some examples of what lives lived worthy of the gospel will look like. Lives of spiritual growth and spiritual development. So the question is, as he, 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 he goes past the parenthesis, he said all these things that we talked about in the beginning, and then he says, well, remember, you have to partner this, and God has to partner this. He goes, but here's some more things that will kind of reveal if you're living a life worthy of the gospel. So we ask, what does he add to the list? Well, the first thing we see is he says something that I don't like at all. You ever read the Bible and go, I don't like that? Good. That means you're honest. He says this. 
we will be people who don't grumble and complain. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling and complaining. So he just did 12 and 13, then he goes on to the list, and he starts off, do all things without grumbling and complaining, so you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children, and, and he goes on. He says that as people who live out the gospel in a way that's worthy of the gospel, that we're becoming more like Jesus, that would be people who don't grumble and dispute or grumble and complain. You know what I wrote in my notes next to that? Ouch. Exclamation point. Ouch. Because in a context here, he's dealing with how Christians interact with one another as together we work through the process of growth and development. How? Because remember, God uses each of us to help the other person grow. So we're together, and the reason we need to be in community is iron sharpening iron. We're rubbing up against each other, and rubbing up against each other causes friction. Rubbing against each other doesn't always make things easy. It's easier to live by yourself. You know, the sign of a person doesn't want to grow. Ricardo said, generally, because I don't have to interact with people, I saw a person's a bumper sticker in their car that said, 2020, I vote for, and excuse me, well, I'll just think I'll say a different word. Um, I'm voting for dogs because people stink. Within say stink. Okay? That's a person that says, yeah, I don't want to interact with people anymore. But here in this context, he's saying the only way we're going to grow is we interact with other Christian people. And what he's getting at here is that maturity recognizes that although... The, the, that the change that God is leading us into might not be enjoyable. And if you work at spiritual growth, you know it's never enjoyable. The outcome is great, but the process hurts a lot of times. Going to class and going, I remember saying to Jeff and Lori after a couple of weeks ago, looking at him like, oh, that stunk. Something like that. Like, I didn't like what, that, what he taught up there at all. Because it was like, oh, I still got things to work on. It's not enjoyable. He's leading us into that path of growth that might not be enjoyable, yet we recognize that it's God's activity in our lives, and we really, we willingly participate in the process of God's work in our life without fighting against it, which is usually expressed by not grumbling and complaining. You know what grumbling and complaining in my life is? I'm usually bucking what God's trying to do inside of me. And I grumble and I complain, and so do you. Of all the things Paul could point out here in living life worthy of the gospel, weren't you shocked when you read and go, don't grumble and complain? You go, that's minor. Paul says it's not minor. Because it's revolution, it's revelationary. It reveals something. It reveals we grumble and complain in the process that we're really fighting the process. We're not embracing the process. It's about embracing the maturing process instead of fighting against it. And if we fight against it, the way we know it is we're grumbling and complaining about it. Does that make sense to you? Good. Grumbling and complaining might reveal that I'm fighting God's growth process in my life. And if you want to know if you're grumbling and complaining, ask your spouse or somebody else who lives in your house. Be careful because they might tell you the truth. And it's not always fun. If they start off this way, well, just brace yourself. It's okay. Out of love. And they go, well, I was going to tell about Friday, but I'm not telling about Friday. Friday, I grumbled and complained the whole day. Maybe the Lord is trying to make me grow. Everything that could have went wrong went wrong. Look what Paul does next. Look at what he says about the next expression of our growth. Look at verse chapter 15, or verse 15. 
He said, do everything with grumbling and complaining so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children, children of innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation among, among whom you appear as lights in the world. He says, if you're growing and you're, be, you're living a life worthy of the gospel, then we will be totally different than the world around us. Could you imagine if somebody could have you know, frozen the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago and unthawed him right now and brought him into our world where he's saying in his world it's a crooked and perverse generation and bring him to America 2020 and say, hey, Paul, you ain't seen nothing yet and let him live in our world. He looked even in that world back then 2,000 years ago and he said, you know what? This is a crooked and a perverse generation and we can say it still is. And how does he say we should live within, as Christian people living out the gospel, live within such a culture? He says this, we should live blameless and innocent lives above reproach. I like how the New Living Translation says it here. It says we should live clean, innocent lives. So what's a life worthy of the gospel look like in the midst of a totally messed up world? Paul says crooked, you can say this, crooked and perverse generation, you know, squared or whatever, you know, we live in today. He says this is what we live like, mature people. We live clean, innocent lives above reproach. What's that mean? Clean lives. But generally in the scripture, sin is represented as dirty. When Jesus talked about of washing people's feet. He said, I don't have to wash you, all of you because you just have some dirt. To live a clean life, it's talking about sin being like dirt that gets washed away, it's filthy. So to live a clean life, dirt-free life, is free from the sin of the culture that is around us. And let's be honest, we are living in a day when what's biblically right and true is being called wrong, and what the Bible calls evil is being celebrated as good. Right? In such a culture, we must be honest with ourselves and avoid whatever God would see as wrong. How do we know what God would see as wrong? The clearest way is to read the pages of Scripture and see what God reveals as wrong and God reveals as right. Let's be honest with ourselves for a moment. What, maybe in the last seven days, have you been engaging in that if Jesus was sitting in the chair next to you that you would feel embarrassed about doing? Allow your mind to wander for a second. In the last seven days, what are you engaging in that if Jesus was sitting in a chair next to you or standing next to you, you would be embarrassed about? What is that? That what the Holy Spirit brings to mind, that is what Paul is saying are things that we need to live free from if we're going to live a life worthy of the gospel. Let's be clear here. Paul's not talking about what you have to do to get saved. You're saved by grace. No, he's saying that as those who live, who are Christians and want to live a life that's worthy of the gospel, that we will not live and act like the culture around us. Our relationship with Jesus 
and the Holy Spirit's activity within us, as we're serious-minded about it and we give due diligence to it, will cause us to want to live different, free and clean from the garbage of the world around us. See, I don't need to give you a list of what those things are. The Holy Spirit will point them out to you. Growth happens when we choose to act on those activities, that the Holy, those things the Holy Spirit is pointing out in our lives, that we become utterly serious about, about honoring God in every area of our lives. When the Holy Spirit points something out, we say, okay, with utter seriousness, I want to free my life from that by the presence of the Holy Spirit who will give me the power to do it, because that's what Paul's talking about here. What I do know is that Paul says that a mature Christian life will look a lot different from the lives of those in a crooked and a perverse generation in the world all around us. Why? Because they don't have Christ in their life and the Holy Spirit helping them to grow in Christ's likeness, to live lives worthy of the gospel. Here's the deal. They don't know any better, but we do. They don't know any better, but we do, right? We do. So he says, listen, when you live a life worthy of the gospel, you're going to look different than the world all around you. So if I look just like the world around me, Paul would say, oh, I think you better look in the mirror and let the Holy Spirit speak to you a little bit. And really quickly, just in a few seconds, few moments, Paul says there's one more thing, one last thing that he points out of living a life worthy of the gospel. Verse 16, he says, we live a life worthy of the gospel when we hold fast the word of life. What's that all about? It's this. He says we cling to, hold fast. We cling to, we hold on to the word of life, which is another way of saying the gospel of Jesus. That's what he means there. The word of life is the word that leads to life. It's the gospel of Jesus. That in the midst of a culture, he's saying in the midst of a culture that's going crazy, that's perverse generation that we're living right in the middle of, that we cling on to the only thing, the only way that can save ourselves and those around us, and that is salvation is only available through Jesus. That's the word of life. And to me, it's no accident the Apostle Paul ends with this. The most important, the most telling reality of spiritual maturity is the unwavering commitment to knowing that Jesus is the way of salvation. You go, well, that's, that's simple. No, it's not. So often, if you've been in the church world for any period of time, so often when people grow and develop, at least they think they're growing and developing, There is a temptation to stray from this singular truth that Jesus is the only way. Because it can sound so intellectually developed and broad-minded to water this. Well, maybe Jesus is just a way, one of the ways, a possible way. No. Paul's final point he uses to express what a life lived worthy of the gospel is this. It is one that holds tightly to the gospel, to the belief that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came to us as the man Jesus and revealed God more fully to us and gave his life in each, in each of our places on the cross to cancel out our sin doubt debt and he rose from the dead to set us free from sin and death and to give us eternal life in his kingdom. And that we can now live with him as our own Savior and our own Lord, being conformed to his image by the activity of the Holy Spirit and forever worship him as our Savior and our God. That's the gospel. 
That's what we hold on to tightly. That's what we never give up. And Paul started, live a life worthy of the gospel, and he ends, cling on to the gospel message if you want to express what it is to live a life in the, in the relationship with Jesus. It begins with this message and it ends with this message. And if we close today, whether you're here or you're watching us online, I ask one question in closing. Are we holding on to the gospel? Are we holding on to the fact that the only way, the most important thing in our life is that Jesus is at the center? In a couple of weeks, Susanna and I are going to co-preach our sermon about this. It's going to talk about Jesus being in the center as part of it. And we ask, is Jesus, is the gospel, is Jesus the core? Or has Jesus become some peripheral thing in your life? That you're the core and, and Jesus is a little satellite and, and your job is a satellite and your kids are a satellite and your career is a satellite and your fun is a satellite. Maybe your fun is three satellites. Or is Jesus the core? And you're a satellite. And your job's a satellite and your fun's a satellite and everything's... That's clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that Jesus is the only answer. Knowing that we need Jesus every day of our life. That's the most important part of all this thing. So whether you're here or you're online, today I want us to think about that. I invite us to do something this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? If you're at home watching on TV, do the same thing. Bow your head with us this morning. We've been given the Holy Spirit a lot of time today. We've, in worship, we've sat in silence a lot. I've tried to take pauses in this message to allow the Holy Spirit to speak. As we're here today, either in this place or you're in a living room or a wherever, coffee shop, and you're watching right now. What I believe is, based on the text that we've read, is the Holy Spirit is the active agent in doing any work. And that work, whether it's spiritual development or it's um, salvation, it's the Holy Spirit who's doing work. And so my question to all of us as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed today is, is first of all, is the Holy Spirit doing a work inside of you today that's saying, you know what, I need to become utterly serious about actually giving my life to Christ. I've been toying with it. I pretend about it. But if I'm honest, Jesus isn't the center of my world. I'm the center of my world. I've never really given my heart to Christ. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm saying making Jesus the Lord and the Savior of your life. That he is the one who's drawing you by his spirit. But you have to do your part with utter seriousness and say yes. And you're sitting here today. And the Holy Spirit's doing a work inside your heart. And something's going on inside of you right now and you know it. Because right now your heart's racing and your palms are sweating and you're going, what am I feeling inside of me? What you're feeling is the, is the activity of the Holy Spirit within you. And I want to give you a chance to respond to what the Spirit is doing inside of you. If you say, you know what, Pastor Mark? I'm ready today to go all in with Jesus. I don't even know what that all means, but I'm ready today to go all in with Jesus, to give him my life. I want him to be the center of my world, and I'm, I'm ready to, to surrender to him, to come under his lordship and leadership. And I'm going to be utter serious, utterly serious about it. I'm ready to, to say yes to Christ today. Whatever it costs me, motive, 
my life better, but because he's God and I'm not. Yes, my life will be better, but that's not the motive. The motive is because he's God and he's calling me to follow him. And if that's you today, I want you to do something in this congregation. You can do it at home also, but between you and me and God, no one else is looking around. But I want you to have an action to show that you're serious. So you say, yes, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus today. I want you to raise up your hand. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. I promise you. I just want to be able to pray with you. Say, Jesus. Okay. You can put your hand down. Anybody else? Yes, thank you. Whether you're here or you're online right now watching, I want us to pray together. And I'm going to invite our whole church congregation that's here right now to pray. And everybody who raised a hand in this place today, and anybody at home that's being honest about this right now and saying yes to Jesus, we're all going to pray this way. I'm going to invite you just to join us in prayer. There's nothing magic about words. It's just your heart talking to God's heart. And so I invite you just to, to pray this way. Dear Jesus, everybody pray together. Dear Jesus, I need you today. On this day, I feel you pulling me. And today, I'm utterly serious. And I'm saying yes to you. I give you my life. I surrender it to you. And I ask you to rescue me. Wash away all the garbage from my life. Make me brand new. On this day, I want to begin brand new with you. So I welcome you into my life. I open up my heart to you today. And I say, become my Savior and my Lord. And I commit to walking with you from this day forward. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to continue with that in just a moment. Just say a moment of prayer this morning. Let us feel compelled. Some of you, other people are here today. And you, Christ is your Savior and your Lord. You know it. But today the Holy Spirit's convicted you a bit, which is a gift. And saying, you know what? I've been utterly serious about all kinds of things. I'm putting tons of effort into my fun, tons of effort into my career, tons of effort into my business, tons of effort into my family. I'm utterly serious about those things, but I'm honest. I'm not utterly serious about my growth in Christ-likeness. I'm not utterly serious about it. And there's something going on in my heart saying, I need to, I need to take this more seriously. I want to take this more seriously. If that's you today, I want to also invite you to do something really bold. I want you to, heads are bowed, or eyes are closed. I want you to raise up your hand. And slip them up right now. Hands all over the place. Again, not to should impress anybody, my hands are up. Jesus, you see us this morning. You can put your hands down if you feel so led. Lord, you see us this morning. We're being honest today. 
we know there's a whole bunch of other things that get in the way. And, and I don't think it's because we want that to happen. I don't think we intend for it to happen. But this life is crazy and it's busy. And the Apostle Paul is the one who said it's a, it's a, a wild world we live in. And we're trying to navigate it. And sometimes we get out of order. I know I do, God. And today, as your kids, we say, Lord, we want to put things in order. We know that your word just showed us that you are the one who gives us the desire to grow and develop and you are the one who gives us the ability, the power to grow and develop. And so right now, God, we invite your activity into our life and we say this, God, as you work in us with utter seriousness, we're going to partner with you. And we ask this, show us, because we're all different, God, show us how, by your spirit, you want us to express our seriousness. For some, it's getting back, Lord, I think, to to actually getting up in the morning maybe and spending some time with you and in your word and allowing you to to speak to us. For some, it's probably maybe going to a class or or something, giving our energy to something where we can grow and develop. For some, it's about putting away some things that are so, they distract us and they fill our lives with so much extra clutter. And we can't be serious about you because we're running a thousand miles an hour. For some, it's about quieting our world. It's about unplugging from our media and sitting in silence with you more regularly. Lord, whatever you lead us to, Lord, right now I pray, speak some of these things into our hearts so that we could grow and develop and live lives worthy of the gospel. Because we know, Lord, when we stand before you, not as a sense of fear, but when we stand before you, you're not going to ask us about our careers. You're not going to ask us about our bank accounts. You're not going to ask us about our friends. You're going to say that I know you. You're not going to ask us about our church activity. Because, Lord, you say in, 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 the, in the Gospel of Matthew that, that many will say that they cast out demons in your name. You're going to know you. You practice lawlessness. That you're going to ask us, how are we in relationship with you? And so today, God, we surrender fresh and anew our hearts to you. Thank you that as we do that, it's a joyous event. This is joyous right now. We surrender our hearts fresh and new to you. For some, for salvation for the first time. For others, for onward, continual growth. We give ourselves fresh and new to you. And we trust that it's all about grace all about your ability and you can you convict us only so that we can get better because you love us. So Lord, now we invite, wrap your love around us in Jesus' name.